Verses 1 through 17. Is that right, Cody? One, uh, five. John chapter 5, verse 5. It reads this. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But I will, excuse me, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Verse 10. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. May God bless the reading of his word. We're looking at this miracle today of Jesus and this man, and I've, I've looked at this passage several times, and I just was kind of, I don't know if I was waiting to teach it, because I feel like there's so much there. There's so much that's going on, and we're going to look at some of it, and I just, I just didn't know what part of it to kind of focus on. And so we're going to be in this. This is one of seven signs that John, or miracles that John talks about in the book. And John wrote a very specific way in his gospel is he was wanting to show, and he kind of states this at the very end of the book in John chapter 20, verse 30, that all these miracles was, the purpose was to show that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he lists these seven signs throughout the book, these seven main miracles to show different aspects of, of Jesus and what he has power over, and also to give the reader a taste of this kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about that he's wanting to establish on the earth. And so this is going to be one of those signs. So with that, I'm just going to pray real quickly and then we'll jump into it. Jesus, we thank you that you love us and that you're faithful and that you want to be known. I think that's my favorite thing, that you're not a God that stands off or, or has us climb up mountains to you so that we can reach you, ascend to where you're at, God, but that you, you climb to get up to us, God. You descend and came to earth so that we might know you. And so right now we want to do that to a larger extent this very specific time we want to know you more and so holy spirit we ask that you would um open our eyes illuminate our hearts to know um the father and and the son and yourself as well and so we just thank you when we pray this jesus in your name amen so john chapter 5 verse 1 through 5 this is jesus poolside here after this there was a feast of the jews and jesus went up to jerusalem now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So we have this pool, and we talked a few weeks back, we talked about one of the miracles where Jesus healed a man, and he sent him down to the pool of Shiloh, uh, Siloam, that, that takes place later in our story. That pool was quite a ways away. This one was right next to the Temple Mount. And um, so it was very close. Now, 
the reason why all of these people that had infirmities and, and were paralyzed had gathered is that it doesn't state it in this text, but there's a subtext that kind of talks about it. And there was a legend that basically people believed there was that an angel would come down and stir the waters in this pool. And the first person to reach the waters would be healed. Now, whether this took place all the time, some would say it took place all the time, and others would say it took place during great feasts that the angel would show up and, and stir the waters. Whether it happened or not, we don't know, but we do know that everybody there by the pool believed this was going on. And so we see that during this feast, there was another feast of the Jews, it says in verse 1, all of these, these helpless, these invalids, as it's called, blind, lame, paralyzed, were gathered there waiting for the stirring of the water. And so I like, as I sit, sometimes as I read these, I try to like picture what's going on, right? You have all of these people and, and their eyes are just fixed on this water, right? Like there's suffering and there's frustration and there's pain and there's like at the same time this level of like competition, like, right? And, and they're all there, and they're living there, essentially, for right now. Like, the pallet's talking about his bed. Like, they were sleeping there. Like, they don't want to miss it. Like, their eyes are fixed on this water, waiting for any ripple to come. And then they're, they're taking off. And so if we're watching a film, right, this, you, I just picture this panning across this landscape of, of people from different um, handicaps, different things going on, different struggles, looking across, and then the camera zooms into this one guy. And it says that he'd been in this state for 38 years, which leads us to believe like, that at some point, they got this guy's story. They heard what was going on with this guy. And so we zoom into this one guy, and verse 6, Jesus kind of comes into this space, and he says to him, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. And when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So our focus is on this one guy. Jesus walks in. He sees this guy. The thing that's hard for me to understand is that everyone there needed to be healed. Like, everyone there needed to be healed. He could have healed everyone there. And for some reason, he didn't. And I don't know why. But it's one of those times where you kind of go like, man, there's a lot of times where God can and is in the same space to change somebody's life. And it for our perspective, for the better, but he chose not to. How many people did he walk by before he got to this guy? And I, it's helpful, I think, for me sometimes to realize, like, we see so much people that have, have had a hard, they've suffered, there's sickness, there's pain, all this stuff, and sometimes it's easy to go, like, God, why don't you fix this? You can, right? And yet you don't. 
And at the end of the day, we have to rest going like God knows best what he's doing. And we're gonna see, obviously, with this guy that God cared more about just healing him. But yeah, these, he walked by every one of these people and they were really all being ravaged by the same problem and that's the sin and brokenness in this world affecting them physically. And then he walks up to this guy and he says the most absurd question I've ever, like, Jesus is notorious for asking these questions. You're just like, wait, what? He goes, do you want to be healed? I can't get over this. Like, I'm just like, of course, right? Like, yes. Like, why do you even have to ask that question? Do you want to be healed? And, and maybe Jesus is trying to stir up something in his heart. Maybe his heart had become just as paralyzed as his legs. Maybe there was so much hopelessness that had come that it, there was like, that he just kind of maybe resigned to the fact that this is who I am now. I think another aspect, this is one of the few times in the New Testament where we see Jesus initiating healing somebody. So often people came to him, right? They were coming to him, asking him, they were pursuing him, where he goes up to somebody and says, do you want to be healed? Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. So I think that's an aspect where Jesus is like, do you, want, do you want me to participate in this with you? And the man's response really is um, sad, honestly. I mean, he starts off with saying, I have no one to put me in the pool. I have no one. Right? Like, I have no one. Like this guy is completely alone. And so often when people suffer, it is unbelievably isolating. This guy had nobody to help him. I think another sad part about his statement is that he said, like Jesus has asked him if you want to be healed and he didn't answer yes. He said, I can't get in the pool. Like that's, the pool was his only hope in healing. There wasn't even another consideration and maybe that's because he had tried everything else. But like his focus was so on this mystical moment where this water is stirred that there was no other alternative for him being healed. Like that was, his eyes were fixed on that. That was his only hope. I mean, imagine, he's like, I can't get there in time. Like I know that I can get, like that's the hope I have, but I can't get there in time. I've watched person after person after person get in the water before me and have their lives radically changed, and yet I can't do it. I can't get there in time. And I just, I mean, and I just trying to think about, I just think about us, or myself, or us today, going, saying, um, like, what about that question in our lives? Like, do you, do you want to be healed? And I get that even in people like in our lives that we love and care about that are suffering or that are experiencing the effects of sin in this world, like sometimes I get that there's people that enjoy, that are sick or unhealthy, that enjoy being around other people that are unhealthy because it makes them feel not so left out, right? And I get that. There's people that are like, where you'd ask them, do you want to be healed? And they're like, no, I'm good. I want to stay right where I'm at. But for us, is there anything that's in my life where um, I've given up on or just believed that that is just how it is. 
like that's an area of, of unhealth, that's an area of, of paralyzation that, that I'm not, like obviously metaphorically, that I'm never going to have healing there. And where whatever it is, it seems impossible. I can't get there. Like I can't get to that space. Um, I've seen others have healing in it. I've seen others experience it. I've seen other people jump in the water, but I can't get there. And it, who knows, we may all not, that question may not resonate with us, but there is an aspect of going, like if Jesus was standing before us right this moment, and he says, do you want to be healed? Like what pops into our mind? What pops into our mind? And so, I don't know, I just, this, this question just blows my mind. I just, like, I'm watching this unfold and thinking about like, well, how would I respond to that? And so as we see, and we jump back in the story, Jesus heals this guy, right? He, um, this man was hoping and essentially on the impossible, and he's unable to get there. He, I think another thing that's interesting, this guy had no faith. Like, you know, often it was like, you just have enough, enough, enough faith. We, we've heard that in church world. This guy didn't have any of it, okay? Didn't even consider Jesus. Wasn't even on his radar. And Jesus still changed his life and healed him. And he tells him to get up, right? His withered legs made strong, atrophy taking place. Pick up your bed, this idea like you're not coming back here. This is permanent. And walk, which is something that he had never done, hadn't done in 38 years at least. And he does it. The guy gets up, he's healed, he did what Jesus says, and he starts carrying his bed around. Jump into verse 6. Or actually, I'm sorry, uh, verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath. Then verse 9. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, Well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is this man? that said to you, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. And so, of course, we have the religious leaders showing up on the scene like we've talked about a lot. They seem to always show up and have a problem with some of this action happening. What I find interesting with these guys is that they could care less that this guy's life had been changed. They only cared about the doctrine and their rules. And to be, um, you know, they had this conversation with him, and he's like, well, the guy who healed me told me to do it. And they're like, who told you to do it? Like, not the guy who healed you, but like, who told you to carry your bed? But they did care about theology over people, and I obviously, I mean, I think we can see that a lot today, where what people, how people function and how they act and what exactly they believe sometimes is more important than them as a person. But to kind of like give the other side of the story for these guys doesn't make it right. But this is where the Pharisees were coming from. And we always want, when we're reading these texts, we always have to understand what was going on from their perspective. And I think it's good for any time we see anything, in our own lives, conflict, we always want to say, like, where's this person coming from? Like, what's their side of the story? So you have to keep in mind, so the Israelite nation was chosen by God to be this people that represented God to the rest of the world in hopes that the whole world would one day come to follow the king that was promised to come, the Messiah. They failed miserably. He gave them the law. Hey, this is how you do it. This is, it's 
Just do these things and you will be this chosen people to change the rest of the world. Well, they were conquered because they kept failing miserably, disobeying God's law, doing the literal opposite of what God called them to do. They weren't pointing people to God at all. They became this racist, nationalistic nation that was, it was bad. It was really, really bad. And so God allowed them to be taken over and conquered. Assyria, Babylon, finally under Persians, they were allowed to come back. And during this time, they were trying to figure out like what happened. And they concluded correctly that we have disobeyed God. So in a response to that, saying, I don't ever want this to happen again, we have to make sure we obey the law, they started going, well, how do we prevent ourselves from disobeying the law? So they started going, well, we need to have definitions for each one of these laws to make sure that we dial it in right. And as time went on, they had explanations for those definitions and rules upon this, and it became this long, huge commentary on the law called the Mishnah. Okay? And so what had happened is what became this idea of observe the Sabbath and keep it holy translated all the way down to this thing of like, can't walk more than X amount of steps, you can't carry this more amount of weight, you can do this, but you can't do this, you can wear this, but you can't wear that. Like, it had become this extravagant, unbelievable amount of rules and laws. And the reason why they did this is they believed that once the nation as a whole obeyed all of it, as a nation, if they obeyed the commandments, then the Messiah would come. They too were waiting for the pool to stir. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for this moment. If we just can get there, we can get everybody involved. We can get, so you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath and you can't do this on the Sabbath. We have to do this because if we don't do it, the Messiah will never come. And yet, the Messiah had come. He was right before them, just as this man was sitting there before saying, I just can't get to the pool. And he was ready to heal. He was ready to heal the nation. They thought they had to get there. Verse 14. And it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Then the man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had actually healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. I love this, that Jesus found him. I just love that. I love that line. Jesus found him. He, God is desires to heal physically. He desires to have human physical flourishing. But he's not just content with that. He wants to see holistic human flourishing. He wants to see us spiritually grow, or spiritually thrive. He cares about the whole human. And I, I like this even on like a total side note is I've lived on the coasts and I've lived here and I have seen been part of churches that like their mantra was social justice. I've others say, no, it's all about theology. It's all about doctrine. And I see Jesus going after the social justice and the theology. He goes after the physical and he goes after the heart, right? 
He cares about healing this man's infirmity, but he also cares about his soul. It's not necessarily an either or. We see, we see that it's both, right? I mean, Jesus is defined in John chapter 1 as full of grace and truth. And truth without grace is cruel. And grace without true is, is a lie, right? And so you have this idea where our, our Savior goes, I'm going to give people what they don't deserve, grace, but I'm also going to be full of truth as well and make sure like we're doing it. Like That's one of the things that's so beautiful. Like I can waffle between the two at times where I can be all about the truth and not give grace. And I can, usually that's me, that guy, okay? Or I can... <laughs> try and give grace, and sometimes it's hard to speak truth into that space, but Jesus did it perfectly, right? So even here, we see him bringing grace to this man, and then he comes with the truth, right? And so he finds this guy. Where does he find him? He finds him in the temple. Like, this guy hadn't been in the temple for at least 38 years. And everybody that maybe walked by this guy would have seen him as cursed, punished by God. We've talked about this before, right? Like, he had done something wrong. And um, he'd been on the outside, and this guy has this opportunity, gets healed, and one of the first things he does is enter the temple, being near God's presence. And it's in that space that Jesus finds him. And Jesus does say something interesting to him. He says, hey, you're made whole, you're, made, you're healed, sin no more. It leads us to believe that, that there's a chance that his infirmity was a result of sin of some sort. We don't know. But it was Jesus wasn't saying, like, never sin again. What he was saying is, like, listen, you have a new lot on life. You're healed. Don't go back to your old life. Like, you have this new opportunity. Like, move forward in that space. And then there's this weird aspect where this guy is, like, goes and rats out Jesus, which I don't get, but it's part of the text. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he was afraid. It was like, it was Jesus, right? Like, I don't know if he's afraid of being put out of the temple. We don't know, but... It's because of this guy going and telling it was Jesus that they ramped up their persecution, which I find fascinating, right? I'm just going to close on this last verse because I think it's significant, right? As we're talking about this idea that they're upset about the Sabbath, that Jesus didn't rest, that he healed this guy, that he changed this person's life, Jesus' response to them is that my father is working until now and I am working. They're like, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He's like, I'm working, right? Like, it is an interesting response. He could have said, no, actually, I didn't break your law. I'm observing, like, but he's like, yeah, I'm working. So is the father. Like, what, right? So I wanted to process through that, right? This idea of the Sabbath, right? I mentioned the, the Mishnah that they made these rules upon rules upon rules. And so we have this idea that, that God said in the Ten Commandments, observe the Sabbath, keep it holy, right? They then defined hundreds of ways that what that means, that's what Jesus was actually breaking, is one of these rules that they made about the rules, right? So he actually wasn't breaking a commandment, but I wanted to talk about the Sabbath a little bit, because God's heart behind the Sabbath is he created Sabbath for us. He created the Sabbath, this time of rest for human beings. He didn't create us for the Sabbath. And the purpose of it was this time we're able to rest from our labor enjoy what we have, commune with the very one who provided it. And it was very, very relational. It was like you, in, you participated in Sabbath with your friends, your family, your community, and it was relational with that you, com, you communed with God. 
It was this time of reflecting on what God had put before us, what he'd provided. It was this really beautiful moment. I mean, a lot like even like Thanksgiving, right? It's this time you gather your friends, you gather your family, you're, you're thankful, you're, you're reminded, but imagine that every single week, right? That's kind of the heart behind Sabbath. And God also didn't want human beings to work seven days a week, and so there was that aspect. But I think ultimately, the point of the Sabbath was to point us as humans to a day that would come when our work would be complete, when this true rest, this true spiritual rest would be experienced. And what's interesting is that in this story, that day is not too far away, right? Because Jesus is the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath points us to Christ. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Jesus said, I'm working. He was working for us so that we wouldn't have to continue to work to make it to God, right? And so with that, I want to I explain kind of what I mean there. God being a holy and a perfect God expects perfection to be in his presence. Like, imperfection cannot be in his presence. God expects perfection. He said that. Be perfect as I'm perfect, right? But obviously, if any of us have been alive for more than a minute, know that that is impossible, right? We cannot be perfect to be in his presence, this holy and perfect God. We cannot be perfect. His law is perfect. He's perfect. We can't be perfect. And so we have this idea of, well, then how can I make myself right with God? How can I be acceptable to a holy and a perfect God How do I do that? I cannot do it. It is impossible. And so that's where Jesus comes. Jesus works. Jesus came as this human and lived this perfect, holy life that God expects on our behalf. That aspect of God working on our behalf, that Jesus lived this life that it's impossible for us to to live, is absolutely one of the most beautiful and essential aspects. But then, as human beings, we go, well, not only can I not live this perfect life, but it is impossible for me to fix all of the mistakes I've made, right? We've broken this holy and perfect law. We cannot do it. Not only cannot do it moving forward, but I I failed in it all the time in the past. So we have this idea of like, well, how do we take care of the sin that we have accrued for ourselves? I think for most of us that have been a Christian for any amount of time, this is the aspect of the gospel that we, we often will Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which is absolutely true. So he, Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life and then he dies for our sin. He takes the sin so that now we're forgiven, we're clean. And so the gospel is both ends of that. This idea that my sin has been removed, but what was required to make me acceptable to God, the perfection Jesus has done for me. And so those that desire that gift, Jesus gives that to them. I'm now righteous, I'm right with God, but I'm also forgiven for the areas that I fail. And that's my standing. And so when Jesus says, I am working, he was working so that we could have rest. He was working so that we could have a Sabbath. 
not just one day a week, but every single day, that I can come and stand before God and say, and, and, and stand before God in a, a restful state, saying that everything necessary for me to be right with you, everything necessary for me to be accepted by you and loved by you, everything that is necessary has been done because Jesus worked on my behalf. And everything that I deserve in regards to consequence and punishment, Jesus also took on the cross. It's both sides of the same coin. It is the gospel. And the beauty of that and how it affects me as someone that follows Jesus isn't that now I get to, when I go to heaven when I die, it's that now I get to live in this space where I don't have to work for God. Jesus has worked for God. He's done everything necessary. I can rest. And so what I get to do is that exactly thing, is I get, I get to do. I get to do this, I get to do that. I don't have to. Nobody's going to punish me if I don't. God's not going to say, you screwed up again. God's good. He sees his son's perfection, and I get to respond in that space. It's almost as though Jesus got into the pool so that everyone could be healed. The ones that could make it and the ones that couldn't, Right? So we get to experience that Sabbath rest every single day. We get to celebrate his work when we come to the table. That's communion. We're remembering. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We're coming to the table saying, your body, your work, that you, you did this for me, your blood that was shed for me. Thank you. It's, in a lot of ways, it's a Sabbath meal that, that the Jews would experience, right? That we get to do as the church. We get to celebrate who God is and what he's done. That takes place every day of the week. So with that, I'm going to close in prayer and we'll continue that thankfulness, that worship. We can experience the communion elements and take that and be remembered of what God's done for us.